individuation volume two uh, on the text history of the notion of the individual um we are still uh in ancient greece uh, in this sort of history of western philosophy um where we started the epicurean section last time um and so we're we're going to continue with the epicureans and um there's a, a specific section on lucretius that we should get to today as well um and uh simon don here sets out the um epicurean uh school as sort of the opposite of the Stoic school. Uh, that's sort of what we saw in the first bit of the section on the Epicureans. Um, so whereas in Stoicism, the individual is incorporated into uh, something greater than, than it, so this cosmic order uh, in which the individual is just a component. Uh, uh, conversely, in Epicureanism, the uh, individual is a composite out of um, the, the sort of primary individuals, which are the atoms. Uh, and so the, the atoms are what have um, sort of inherent individuality uh, and the human individual or the various entities that we're familiar with in our everyday lives are composites that are made up of many atoms. Uh, and um, so there's a, the, the difference between Stoicism and Epicureanism at the ontological level is has to do with um, whether individuality is uh, something that is uh, greater than the human scale in Stoicism or um, lesser than the human scale in uh, Epicureanism. Uh, and so those are sort of opposite orientations towards um, uh, the relationship between individuality and the human scale. Um, and then there's also um, a sort of, uh, yeah, there's a difference in terms of um, how that relationship between the individual and the uh, environment uh, or the milieu um, uh, is is conceived in these two schools. Um, so in Stoicism, the, there's this notion of the resonance of the individual with the milieu. So um, there's a, uh, this is drawn from the theory of um, resonance of musical instruments and um, harmonic uh, frequencies and, and so on. Um, Sort of the, the Pythagorean um, uh, inheritance of the Stoic school, um, but there's this idea that the individual has to uh, sort of find a way to resonate in in harmony with the uh, frequency of the milieu uh, of the environment, uh, and so the the environment is sort of the active participant, and then the individual is kind of passive in the sense that they they have to respond to what the environment is. Uh, Whereas, and we'll we'll see this um, uh, when we pick up the reading today um, in the Epicurean school, there's no there's nothing um, active about the milieu in the same sense. Uh, the milieu is just composed of atoms and void, um, and so the the individual is not um, doesn't have this need to uh, incorporate itself into the milieu and resonate with the milieu. There's a um, a completely different, uh, it's a sort of reciprocal orientation between the, um, the milieu and the individual. Okay, so let's pick up from there um, um, for today's reading. So we're starting on page 492 of the translation. Um, so I'll read the first uh, page or so, and then we'll um, discuss as usual. Okay, uh, and so we're starting about halfway down the page uh, for those following. 
Conversely, in Epicurean theory, the milieu is not what subordinates the, the singular individual to the whole, for the milieu loses its character of act activity proper. It is nothing more than the void. It is not capable of transporting itself in the form of an impact, certain quantity of energy arising from another body. It is only that which, due to its emptiness, makes possible the passage of every emanation, corpuscle, or thin layer with the form of the object that has emitted it. This essentially neutral and inactive, non-resistant, Propertyless milieu allows its singular individuals to act upon each other by way of emission. Only movement and contact can put singular individuals in relation. Yet these actions are reciprocal and rigorously reversible, whereas the action of the milieu on the singular individual is the quintessence of the irreversible action. In the Epicureans, the theory of sensations, just like that of the formation of composites, conforms with the principle of the milieu's emptiness and the reversibility of actions. The first consequence of this refusal of the active milieu that binds all things together is the rejection of necessity, imarnene, or destiny. Epicurus says that, quote, it were better indeed to accept the legends of the gods than to bow beneath the yoke of destiny which the natural philosophers have imposed, unquote. For the Epicureans, there is no idea of a determined order that transforms the cosmos into a rational work wherein every event happens the moment it must happen due to a providential order. The ensemble of all things is nothing but a sum, the preciousness summa summarum, the sum of all sums, and not an individual being. This sum is infinite, and there is an infinity of worlds in an infinite space and an infinite time. The events that happen are not events of the cosmos. They are merely the results, the result due to the chance encounters of elementary particles. Dynamism is not a dynamism of the summa summarum with fixed and determined intentions. It belongs to the elementary particles. This is how the notion of parenclesis, or clinomen, inclination, can be understood. A notion which is accepted by Epicurus and added to the atomistic physics of Democritus. The Plina Men, in fact, attributes to the uh, elementary particles an absolutely autonomous movement. This absolute initiative designates the particles not as simple parts of the whole, but as constituents. Movement is inherent to the particles. This physical individual, the particle, is the absolute origin of movement. This is because in Epicurean physics, the particle is not just that which remains at the end of the process of division, originating with a body of great size and which is forced to halt at a minimum beneath which it cannot descend for physical or logical reasons. The Epicureans undoubtedly do not refuse this existence of minima, but they do not turn these minima into the whole reality of the elementary particle. The minimum, in fact, does not contain as reality anything but that of the, of the fragmented whole, to which is added the failure of the human, ideal or real operation of division. The minimum thus takes its reality from the whole, in which it previously participated because it was a part of the latter when this whole was not yet submitted to the operation of division. The minimum qua minimum is therefore not a first reality. It is an individual, it is not an individual by itself, but solely due to the succession of an operation that has divided a whole and halted at some point at a certain level. This individual is a result, and as we will say today, an artifact, even if the failure of the operation of division, which in itself is indefinite, is due to a cause originating in the object grasped in its structure. Conversely, the Epicurean's elementary particle is a constitutive particle. It exists in the free state from the start. It is molecule and not atom, seed of things and not a result of their division. Its indivisible nature pertains to and stems from what it is, not from what it can be. In this sense, we feel the declination of the soul, the movement which allows it to modify the attitude of the body. It is in this way that we must envision the declination of molecules, i.e. as a spontaneous movement. Molecules, therefore, have a real positivity and independence. They are what constitute the composite. They exist and move prior to being the parts of a given composite. The forces by which they are joined do not depend on the whole within which they are found, but solely on the rapports of form and movement between molecules which are in contact with each other. Um, yeah, let's stop there with this.
multi-page paragraph. Um, right, so there's a few of the um, central notions of Epicurean physics that are introduced here. So uh, in particular, the, the clean amen, um, which is the, the famous uh, swerve of the atoms. So the universe consists of atoms falling in the void, um, but if that's all there was, if the atoms just fell straight down, then there would be no composition. Everything would just be um, uh, just these individual atoms falling in a straight line. Uh, and so there's this notion of um, the swerve of the atoms. So the atoms have uh, a kind of freedom. Um, they're, they're capable of uh, deviating from this downward path. And because, because of this deviation or this swerve, they, um, the, the paths, the downward paths combine with each other or collide with each other and produce composites. Uh, and this is ultimately the origin of all the uh, entities that we're familiar with, you know, planets and stars and trees and stones and so on are all um, products of this swerve of the atoms in the downward motion. Uh, and as a result of this um, uh, conception of um, the atoms as having freedom, there's a rejection of the uh, Stoic notion of destiny. Um, so there's no, um, there's no sort of uh, pre-programmed uh, nature of the future. Everything is due to chance, um, uh, chance encounters of atoms in the void. Um, and so there, there's, no, um, there's no notion of a necessary progression of uh, events through time like there is in Stoicism. And then another bit here is has to do with this notion of the atom as a minimum. Um, uh, and so uh, Simon Don argues here that um, we have to understand the atoms not as uh, purely as um, the minima of a division process, but as um, something that has an inherent individuality distinct from that. So if we if we just think of um, atoms as minima of division, then we treat the composite as the primary reality. We, we take um, a stone or a tree or whatever as something that it has reality um, in itself. And then we divide that reality up into its component parts. Uh, and we continue dividing until at some point we reach a, a limit where we can't divide anymore. And that, that's sort of a, a, a logical conception of um, what an atom might be. But... Um, Instead, we have to think uh, in the Epicurean system, we have to think of the atoms as having um, having inherent reality on their own and not just as components or um, not just as the result of a division process. Um, and, and so it's the atoms that, that are the primary realities and uh, the composite ent entities are um, uh, secondary. They, they have existence or reality only um, sort of derived from their... Um, uh, the atoms that compose them. Okay, so let's go on to the next page or so if you'd like to read. Uh, yes, Wh which line are we starting with? Um, we're at the fact that action through contact. Okay. The fact that action through contact is the only one retained is capable of explaining the phenomena of nature, reserves for the molecules the initiative any of any transformation that intervenes in the composite. The composite is a sum, a finite sum, whereas the world is an infinite sum. The elementary molecule is what possesses an imminent and perpetual movement. There is one exception to this rule of the spontaneity and independence of molecules, the eternal fall of molecules through the infinite void. Strictly speaking, it would be necessary to explain the existence uh, of this field of gravity. However, the ancients did not have ideas as clear as those provided by Newton's system. 
weight should appear to the Epicureans as a property of the molecule and not as a force proportionate with the product of two masses and inversely proportionate with the square of their distance. Weight is not distinguished from mass and therefore cannot be, and therefore can be considered as a characteristic property of the molecule, whereas in fact mass alone is a characteristic property of the molecule. In this way, the notion of field and force of attraction does not intervene. At any rate, it would be contrary to the presuppositions of this physics because it would create a causality of the whole accompanied by a, a possibility for the whole to impose a movement of the ensemble onto all singular individuals. The idea of a field of forces implies another conception of the rapport between elementary individual, individuality and totality, whether this field of forces be conceived as immaterial or as materialized by, by a milieu. In this refusal of everything that would be assimilable to a field, the Epicurean physics is distinguished not only from Stoicism, which materializes the field of forces under the auspices of seminal and artistic fire, but also from Aristotle's rationalism. Any attraction of the inferior by the superior, any direction through a unique principle imposing a rational finality upon everything that happens in the universe is inconceivable when every influence at a distance, i.e. every field of forces, is denied. It should be noted that no field is absolutely necessary for explaining the combination of molecules. The principle of inertia and the, con the conservation of motion would, su would suffice. The Epicureans suppose a fall of the molecules in the infinite void because this fall is an inexhaustible reservoir of potential energy in each molecule, which makes possible the explanation of all the combinations that form beings in the course of time. Under these conditions, the quantity of energy that represents the clinamen is extremely low. The greatest part the greatest part of the energy necessary for the formation of composites in reality originates from the movement of falling in the void, which is deviated by the clinamen, but which acts in accordance with its own energy. The clinamen is an extremely low control energy that occasions the manifestation of much more considerable quantities of energy. Furthermore, it must be acknowledged that the clinamen is proper to each of the corpuscles, whereas the fall in the void does not distinguish one corpuscle from another, since all movements are parallel. Consequently, the fall cannot produce an action that would be an expression of the spontaneity of each molecule, cannot have any productive initiative, and it has to be brought to act at a determined instant by something that comes from the particular individual. This initiative constitutes the rigorously irreducible aspect of the physical individual. The Epicurean's atomic molecule is therefore something other than a minimum. It is that which has an unalterable magnitude and form and can be endowed with initiative and spontaneity. So it seems like part of the point of this is that uh, Epicurean physics would not be able to countenance the idea of gravity because gravity uh, is, is a kind of field attraction that would attribute some kind of dynamism to the void, which would be, which would be incompatible with, um, with Epicurean physics in which all dynamism has to, be, has to originate with the individual atoms themselves. Um, yeah, I think I think that's mostly right. Uh, the only point where I think maybe would, I would correct that is um, I think the notion of gravitation or, or att attraction um, doesn't, strictly speaking, attribute dynamism to the void. It, um, it's a slightly different sort of physical schema that, that is involved is um, its uh, attraction of, or, or action at a distance between the particles so the particles attract each other across a distance um and uh it's it's this action at a distance that they have to um 
reject uh, because in the in the uh, sorry Epicurean physics, um, all action is um, is through contact, mm. uh, and and so um, allowing for something like gravity would mean allowing uh, atoms to um, operate on each other or to influence each other at a distance, and this um, this would be something kind of mysterious, uh, and you know even uh, in like the 16th century. Uh, or 17th century when um, uh, 17th century, sorry, uh, when when the Newtonian theory of uh, of gravity um, is uh, is developed, um, this notion of attraction at a distance is uh, conceived as something mysterious, and um, uh, a lot of the Cartesian uh, school rejects uh, gravity for that reason. Um, Interesting. Uh, and and so this this. Um, general principle of trying to explain the world in non-mysterious ways uh, and, you know, incorporate these very simple and comprehensible um, schemas of action, like, uh, you know, the contact of, of two particles with each other. Uh, I think it's this general approach to physical explanation that um, makes them have to reject anything like a, a, a field of attraction, uh, a gravitational field. Um, but yes, so they, they understand, so because they, they don't have any notion of a, a gravitational field, they understand um, the weight of the particle as an inherent property as opposed to a relationship between one particle and another particle, um, where, where in the post-Newtonian world, we um, understand weight as a property, as a relative property. So there's a certain weight of a uh, I don't know a stone on Earth and a different weight on on the Moon or whatever. Um, uh, the weight of a of an object depends on its mass, on uh, an, an inherent property, and also on the gravitational field in which it uh, is found. Um, whereas the uh, uh, Epicurean physics sort of um, combines uh, weight and mass into one uh, inherent property of um, this. Uh, capacity or, or necessity of falling in the void. Uh, and here's, this is another um, sort of opposition with the Stoic physics, because the Stoic physics is all about um, uh, these sort of fields of uh, influence of different, uh, different entities on each other. They all interpenetrate each other and uh, influence each other in, in various ways. And the whole universe is, is ultimately one giant field that is sort of, uh, resonating in this uh, very complicated way that produces all the different entities that we that we see in uh, in the universe um, and and so these are um, two two uh, completely opposed ways of explaining the physical worlds uh, the this sort of corpuscular and mechanistic um, picture that the epicureans have and this field um, dynamic uh, um, picture that the stoics have uh, and then there's also this bit, which uh, I think is is Simon Don's um, sort of original contribution here, um, is um, conceiving the klinomen as a kind of uh, control energy. Um, and, and so we can think of some of the material um, from uh, the other book on the mode of existence of technical objects, where he's talking about, um, there's a, a long section about... Um, vacuum tubes which is a little bit obscure for those of us who were not like you know around in the 1950s when this was uh the sort of technology of the time um but he he talks about how um these uh vacuum tubes um use 
um, a sort of control energy to um, you have like a, a, a low um, energy uh, signal that it, that controls the flow of a much more uh, a much stronger current of energy um, uh, and um, similarly we can think of the the cleanup man as a kind of um, signal or um, modulation of this much greater flow of energy in the downward falling of the particles um, and and so we um, uh, this sort of modulation uh, is what um, brings about the structures that we see in uh, you know uh, entities that we are familiar with uh, and and so we ultimately everything that we know is a kind of um, uh, modulation of the falling of atoms uh, and this kind of um, signal superimposed on this falling of atoms. Do you think it would be accurate to say that the clinamen of each atom has an individu individuating function with respect to that atom um, at the end of this paragraph before the Lucretius section uh, where he says that the that ends with the sentence that the initiative of the clinamen constitutes the rigorously irreducible aspect of the physical individual, um, I guess, whereas if it was just the fall, the fall through the void, there would be nothing to distinguish one atom from another. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Um, so if you just had atoms falling in the void, um, each, uh, each track, uh, the, the path that each atom falls would be uh, parallel. Um, and, um, there would be no way to distinguish one from the other, and it, it's not in, especially in uh, because we have an infinite universe. It's not even clear how we would say that you have one path versus another. Um, like, how do you distinguish one location where the, a certain path is uh, of a an atom is falling, and uh, a second uh, location where a, a a second atom is falling? Um, there, the the two. Uh, points of space through which the atoms fall are indistinguishable. Um, mm. And uh, so in order to be able to make a distinction between different points of space and different paths of atoms, and then ultimately between the atoms themselves, um, we have to have some notion of um, spontaneity of the atoms. So the atom uh, uh, is a, an entity that... Um, has this sort of internal principle of motion that allows it to deviate from this falling, uh, this uh, falling in the void, um, and uh, it's this principle, this internal principle of motion, that makes it something individual and distinct from all the other atoms. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the Lucretius section, um, and maybe I'll just preface this by saying that um, Lucretius, um, of course, was an Epicurean. Uh, so here, where this is still continuing uh, on the Epicurean school, um, but um, Lucretius is, uh, his, his book um, is uh, sort of the canonical text that we have um, uh, left to us uh, of the Epicurean school because uh, Epicurus's writings, we have like uh, some of his letters and I think some fragments of other texts, but we don't have like um, a book from, Lucre from uh, uh, Epicurus outlining his whole um, system. Uh, so Lucretius is kind of the, uh, the canonical text that, that we have to refer to um, uh, as the, the like systematic setting out of the Epicurean philosophy. Okay, so I'll read the first page. Uh, Lucretius. 
However, alongside the vigorous restoration of physical individuality, it seems that there is for the Epicureans, at least for Lucretius, a certain omnipresent or at least subjacent idea of the force of the universe in its ensemble qua nature. The sum of sums is indeed also substantial. It is just as substantial as each of the elementary corpuscles because it is composed by their infinite sum. Yet it seems that this infinity of the sum is also more directly contemplated in the Ionian sense of the term, i.e. as the power of making beings grow after having engendered them, the power of ensuring that individual after individual succeeds in propagating the species, re-entering into nothingness after having momentarily carried the flame of life, like runners in a relay race who hand off the flame before collapsing in exhaustion. Lucretius has sung the immortal verses of this intuition of the continuity of life, its power to be to ever be born and re-emerge. He invokes this fertile nature through the strongest and most prestigious images of Greek or Oriental mythology. Demeter, Gaia, Sibeli, and the Curetes are evoked in the memories of Ionian physiology. The goddess of amorous desire is invoked first through the vision of a subjugated world in which the elements are active and present. Venus is not just hominum divumque voluptas, joy of gods and men. She is also Alma Venus, Venus the life giver, who fills with life mare navigarum, the sea that carries the ships, and terras frugiferentis, the land that bears the crops. The sky changes its own appearance for the goddess. The winds, rains, and clouds depart, and an immense luminous peacefulness spreads over the horizons. Te dea te fugiant venti, adventumque tuum. Facatumque nitet diffuso lumine caelum. Thou goddess, thou dost turn the flight, turn to flight the winds, and the sky, its anger past, gleams with spreading light. The fertile breeze of Favonius thaws the frosts and brings forth life. Diget genitabilis aura Favoni. This term diget deserves to be highlighted for its expressive value. This is Venus's creative ardor, which exerts itself by exhibiting itself in the four elements. Venus is the thesis of the four elements, the conspiring unity of their vital thrust. The earth itself is also transformed. Tibi suaves daidala tellus sumitid flores. For thee, earth, the quaint artificer, puts forth her sweet-scented flowers. This underscores how Lucretius can say, Ficus ut cupide generatim cycla propagant. Thou dost strike fond love into the hearts of all, and makest them in hot desire to renew the stock of their races, each after his own kind. Lucretius no doubt seems to be more particularly imminent to the earth. Lucretius is a philosopher who is comparable to the Ionian physiologists. Yet while Thales, Anaximander, and Anaximenes chose water, the indefinite, aperon, and air as the fundamental element, Lucretius feels and expresses the existence of a telluric thesis. Borrowing from mythology, the myth of Demeter and the story of the birth of the first man who emerges from a womb and rooted in the earth express this conviction. But thesis penetrates all things and is not merely the living species. Must the existence of a finality of the whole therefore be accepted? The very notion of finality must be analyzed here. In the Stoic system, the world soul, which is distinct from the passivity of matter insofar as it suffuses and subtends the latter, providentially governs the world. It is logos and foresees events in a unique series that excludes chance. It is decision or power of decision that creates a marmenel. Conversely, the Lucretius, with Lucretius, physics, physics is not a logos. It is a veritable force. There is a difference in Epicurean nature and Stoic nature between an intention and a tendency, between a volition and, and a desire. The force of nature acts on the ensemble of the universe, but not to determine this or that fact. This power of nature is revealed in the richness of chance. At the limit, the infinity of space and time are characteristic of this physis. They expand the domain of chance by conferring positive infinity onto it. It is due to this positive infinite that chance becomes the power of nature, 
or at least allows Jesus to exert itself through chance instead of determining the future states of a closed and limited world, a cosmos wherein everything is in relation with everything else. For the Stoics, the world is an individual and Jesus can only be providential and necessitating. Right, so this um, first bit here has to do with the beginning of Lucretius's book, uh, De Rerum Natura, um, um, where he, he talks about, um, or he uses the term Venus. Um, and Venus, of course, was the Roman name for Aphrodite and uh, was the goddess of love. Um, and um, uh, so in some respects, Lucretius uh, criticizes the traditional um, Greek and Roman mythology, uh, but he is willing to use the term Venus here for um, this principle of um, the sort of generative power of nature, uh, this uh, principle that leads individuals to um, uh, reproduce and that makes nature fertile, uh, and and so this this is what um, what Lucretius means by uh, Venus in the opening of the book. Uh, and Simon Don here compares this with the uh, Ionian physics, uh, this the, this notion of physis that we find in in the Ionian physiologist that we saw a few weeks ago when we read um, the earlier part of this uh, of this text. Um, but the difference here is that um, this uh, notion of physis is one that is completely um, non-teleological. So there's no notion of finality uh, built into this uh, picture of nature. Uh, so the world is not governed by um, providence or something that has a goal or intention in mind. Uh, it's... Uh, uh, nature acts through chance, um, and we'll see more on that later. But um, there's a uh, this sort of power of chance and randomness that uh, brings about the combinations of atoms and uh, the formation of more and more complex entities through combination. Um, and uh, it's only because space and time are infinite that every possible combination of those. Uh, of those atoms and uh, of those uh, smaller composites uh, is is possible, um, and and that's why um, this world or this depiction of the world is one in which there's no um, there's no finality. It's all about uh, causes and chance. Uh, that's those are the sort of principles that um, that govern the world. Yeah, I think this the notion of of the rejection of necessity in Lucretius's philosophy is interesting. It seems like in the last section on the Epicureans, the rejection of necessity was, was a result of the <clears throat> replacement of cosmos, I guess, with, with void. So there couldn't really be any action of the cosmos on the individual atoms, um, which, you know, could be teleological. But at the beginning of this section, Simondon seems to say that there is a kind of action of the cosmos in Lucretius, and it's it is what you know the power of Venus, as you were describing it, the generative power. And so, I think you just said this, but the notion of contingency here seems to be um, linked to the idea of the infinity of space and time in the universe. Um, I don't like totally understand the how in infinite space and time means that, uh, you know, everything is contingent. But it makes me think of the idea that in a closed, in like, I think the second law of thermodynamics, in a closed system, entropy can never 
decrease, but in an open system, I think it can decrease. Um, I, it's very late here, and that's kind of a half-baked thought, but I wonder if there's any connection between entropy and necessity and contingency here. Yeah, I think that's an interesting suggestion. Um, um, I think I think the notion of, or the, the role that the infinity of the universe is playing here is a somewhat different one. Um, I think... I think the idea is that um, because space and time are infinite, it means that every possible combination of atoms will eventually um, will eventually happen, um, uh, or or will happen somewhere in in space and time, um, and and so um, we'll see later on. Um, this uh, has a there's a, a sort of evolutionary um, story that Lucretius wants to tell as well. Um, and and this is sort of superimposed on these chance encounters. So um, uh, and and this is also similar to what we saw with um, um, sorry I'm lo- I lost the name here um, the guy that jumps in the volcano. Um, oh, Empedocles. Empedocles, yes. Sorry. Um, yeah. So Empedocles had the same uh, this this evolutionary story in which you have the formation of these monsters where you know a head and an arm and or a foot and a a torso or whatever just sort of joined together um and it's only um as a result of the monsters dying out that we have the uh sort of well, well-structured forms that we see today um uh um so lucretius has a similar story where you know there's these chance encounters of atoms that form these composites um and those composites in turn have these chance encounters and some of them are uh, viable entities that survive and reproduce themselves, and some are these sort of monsters that uh, that are not viable. Um, and uh, uh, so it's this combination of the chance encounter uh, and then the evolutionary um, story or this evolutionary um, explanation of the reproduction of entities that uh, that those two combined together um, are the explanation for the structure that we observe in the world. Um, uh, and so because, um, uh, um, yeah, so the, the openness uh, of the system here, I think we, we can conceive of this as an open system in the thermodynamic sense because everything, uh, there's this constant input of energy through the fall of the, uh, of the atoms in the void. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, so the, the whole universe is a kind of open system because it, uh, everything is constantly falling in the void. And, uh, and this is the sort of input of energy that allows for um, the formation of structure and, and uh, complex entities in, in the universe. Thank you. That makes sense. So, yeah, the, the relationship between um, uh, open, uh, open and closed systems or the rela- relationship between thermodynamics in general and... Um, um, chance uh and uh like thermodynamics is a, a sort of statistical um uh uh i don't know domain of physics um it has to do with the um chance the probability of uh encountering a particle in a certain volume of space um or um the probability that a certain state will be um will be reached uh in a certain amount of time and so on um and so there's definitely a, a close connection between thermodynamic concepts and uh, these notions of uh, the, the chance encounters of atoms in the void. That's very interesting. Yeah, and uh, like in the 19th century, um, there's sort of two streams of thought that combine in, in the history of thermodynamics. Like when, when thermodynamics starts to become a, a field, um, you have like the um, uh, sort of 
phenomenological thermodynamics. So this is like looking at large systems like steam engines and seeing like how the the uh, a steam engine transforms heat into motion, for example, um, um, and and sort of what are what the conservation of energy implies in, in a, that type of system. Uh, and then you also have the statistical dream, which is um, uh, an explicitly atomistic um, uh, depiction of, of physical entities uh, with Boltzmann and, and um, people like that, um, that um, they have an atomistic conception of uh, um, gases in particular, but of um, physical entities in general, that they're composed of these atoms that are, you know, moving around in these sort of random patterns. And uh, we can use statistical principles to try to understand um, the the overall behavior of the aggregates um, and, and that's sort of those two streams combine into forming what is now thermodynamics that's very interesting yeah Boltzmann seems like a uh, in particular a really interesting character <laughs> yeah I mean I, I don't know a lot about him but but yeah he um, he's uh, to a large extent responsible for reviving um, the atomistic hypothesis um, that was um, sort of not really uh, in in favor in the like mid to late 19th century um, mm. and uh, yeah so he he sort of brought it back to life and had to fight against a lot of um, opposition at the time uh, people that you know thought that this was uh, a misguided approach to physics uh, um, and uh uh, obviously, there was a lot of um, like the this revival of the atomistic hypothesis has had a lot of um, productive effects in physics, uh, and so there's a um, you see this this hypothesis that um, in ancient Greece was a kind of uh, thought experiment almost. Um, there's like very little empirical evidence that you can use to base it on. Um, but uh, it gets revived at various times throughout history and becomes more and more um, sort of, sort of um, empirically specified so that you can actually, um, uh, you know, understand atoms as real physical entities and not just as a sort of uh, thought experiment. Uh, okay, so let's go on to um, the next bit. Um, so we're at the top of 497 in the PDF. Um, uh, conversely, we see Lucretius. Okay, I can read um, conversely, we see Lucretius in his description of the way the successive encounters of atoms within the void most often engender, un engender unviable beings that return to their elements. Say, when speaking of nature, Conata asks, she strove in vain. Nature strives in this way, but since she strives through the infinity of chance, she does not create any necessity. Her effort has no predetermined end, but it can have a meaning in its results because it is always identical to itself. The individual being makes of the effort of nature what the elementary corpuscle with the clinamen makes of the force of falling in the infinite void. There is no rhythm, no definite tension with which the individual must become syntonic. Force of nature, like what we will today call a potential energy, is always available. Ethics harmonizes with this conception of individuality. Unlike the Stoics, the Epicureans do not have an ethics-oriented physics. There is no systematic bond between a physical dogma and an ethical norm with the Epicureans, because for them there is no physical dogmatism. Physics is indeed studied for the knowledge that it can provide concerning the nature of being, but it deploys its own organization in a climate of extremely broad intellectual freedom. There is no subordination of physics to ethics. Physics is truly a generative prin is physics is truly a principle. I don't know where I got that word from. 
the constitutive element of a doctrine and not just an integral part determined by the ensemble. The fundamental schema of Epicurean thought is conserved even in knowledge. This, the element is constitutive and remains free. The consequence of physical atomism is that it removes all substantiality from the composite that the living being is. Veritable substantiality belongs to the atomic molecules, not to the composite. The composite only subsists until a force superior to the mutual cohesion of the particles that constitute it eventually dissolves it. Thus, one could speak of a relative and limited substantiality of the composite individual, which results from the mutual relation of, the, of its constituents. The semina rerum, the seeds of things, but which, when the composite is generated and exists, indeed belongs to it and does not depend on a broader principle. There is no uh, a, a, mar, a marmine, I'm not sure if that's right. Yeah, that's right. That, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> that externally governs the duration of the composite individual according to a cosmic order. In Epicureanism, there are none of these privileged and crucial moments of time, Hyroi wherein the activity of the singular individual encounters the rhythm of the world with which to become syntonic. The manner of following nature is quite different in the two doctrines. In Stoicism, nature is the rhythm and movement of the whole, whereas in Epicureanism, nature is at the level of the elementary semina rerum that constitute each composite being. The being does not have to seek a coincidence with the unique movement that rationally governs the universe. The being has within itself, not qua singular being, but qua composite, formed by the semina rerum, this fundamental and immutable reality that is nature in each of her seeds. In the swirling virulence of dust, amidst an oblique ray of sunlight and the whirlwind of uplifted sediment, the individual sees and bears witness to what it is. The matter that we see and touch, the poppy seed that flows like liquid when broken by hand, dirt, stone, and steel, our nature, just as much as the forests and the teeming waters of the sea. Sensation is the contact between the matter that we're outside us, which is tangible and sensorial because touching and feeling are the actions of atoms and a soul composed of atoms. There is no mediation that exists and must exist between man and things. This very profound, very moving love of things in Lucretius is quite far from being a search for poetic beauty. Pure sensation and immediate sensibility are one and the same thing in Epicureanism. To follow nature is to be linked to her in an immediate and elementary way, to be particulate in some manner. All mediations are ruled out, whether they stem from the search for pleasure, for, from passion, from ambition, or from fear. There's not so much enjoyment, but sensation that must be conserved. The appetite for enjoyment prevents sensation because it erects the artificiality of pleasure between man and the natural thing. The austerity of sensation and its profound gravity demonstrate the necessity of a veritable contemplation of thought in a repose of the body so that this contact with natural matter can be established. Uh, I guess I'll stop there. Um, this idea of a separation between physics and ethics is, doesn't entirely make sense to me. Um, he says that unlike the Stoics, well, maybe the point is that uh, the Epicureans don't start from start from an ethics or don't orient their physics um, on the basis of, of an ethics, but it does still seem like there's a necessary connection between Epicurean physics and Epicurean ethics. Yeah, I think, um, I think you're right that there, there definitely is a connection between the physics and the ethics. Um, it's not just um, sort of a, a haphazard um, you know, combination of, of one set of physics and another ethics. Um, um, 
what I think he might be getting at when he talks about this sort of um, uh, the the fact, or when he says that the Epicureans do not have an ethics-oriented physics, um, he he might be talking about um, how in Epicureanism there's a certain uh, uh, hypothetical nature to the uh, the physics, um, like in some of Epicurus's letters, um, he he uh, I forget exactly what phenomenon he's talking about, but anyway, someone asked him about like how do you explain this natural phenomenon, and he gives like three different explanations, and he says you can sort of pick whichever one you like best, um, and what matters is really um, knowing that this phenomenon is not some uh, um, is not a, something that the gods send to us for a reason or something like that. It's not a, a warning or a punishment or a, a, a blessing or whatever. It's just a, a physical event that happens. Um, and uh, the specifics of like which explanation you pick are, are sort of secondary to that. Um, and uh, so in Epicureanism, the actual um, investigation of physical phenomena and the the types of explanations that are proposed are, are sort of independent from the uh, uh, the specifics of the ethical position in a way that is not the case in Stoicism. I think that's maybe what Simon Don is getting at here. That makes sense. So for the Stoics, physics has to be this like Pythagorean approach to harmonics in order for the ethics to make sense. But that's not necessarily the case for the Epicureans and their physics. Right. Yeah. So the the only thing that the physics really contributes to the ethics in for the Epicureans is this um, uh, non mysteriousness, I guess you could say, or or this um, um, uh, opposition to um, teleological explanation. So as long as you have a, a physics that fits those criteria, it, then the specifics of like how you explain uh, I don't know rainbows or lightning or whatever other phenomena. Are, are sort of independent of that. And so you can, there, when he says, when Simon Do says here, there's this freedom, intellectual freedom, um, it's because you can you can propose various different explanations of, of the particular phenomenon and uh, um, the ethical implications. That makes sense. Um, and yeah, and so then we also see here um, this um, account of the composite in Epicurean physics, um, so that um, there's a sort of uh, principle that governs uh, the, uh, the the composite entity, this semina rerum, these seeds of things. Um, there's a kind of um, overall structure of the composite, um, but uh, this is just uh, a, a sort of combination of atoms in a particular way. It, it's not something. Um, it's not something uh, independent of the atoms. Uh, and so entities, composite entities, are um, they have a certain cohesion or, or um, uh, sort of self self subsistence, um, but it's only it's a contingent cohesion. Uh, it lasts for a certain amount of time until something comes along that um, dissolves it or breaks it up or whatever. Um, and so there's there's only um, uh, cohesion is something that comes into being and lasts for a certain amount of time and then. Uh, disappears uh when the entity is uh it dies or is broken up or whatever um and and so this this is just a, a sort of passing cohesion um and uh, a passing coherence of entities and it's not um there's nothing um that sort of uh there's nothing like a the aristotelian form that is um sort of unifying the entity in in this 
um, more fundamental way. And there's also, um, as a sort of uh, consequence of this notion of the composite, there's no, um, there's no sort of incorporation of the uh, individual into a cosmic order. Um, as we, we talked about earlier, um, there's no way, there's no sense in which um, the, the individual has to sort of um, uh, resonate to the, the order of the universe, like in Stoicism, or to um, sort of uh, fit in with these, uh, with this rhythm of the universe or anything along those lines. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, in the same way as you have this individuality of the atoms, um, there's also a, a sort of individuality of the human individual um, that is not incorporated into a cosmic order. Uh, and and so the ethics is a an individual ethics um, as opposed to a um, the stoic ethics which has this sort of uh, universality to it. And then um, there's also here mention of um, or allusion to a, a passage in Lucretius where he talks about um, how you can sort of get an idea of what the atoms are by looking at um, dust swirling in a sunbeam. Um, and and this this is a kind of this is basically the only um, sort of empirical uh, basis for atomism. It, this sort of phenomenon of, of dust swirling in the sunbeam, or um, the other example is like um, seeing uh, uh, sediment being stirred up by uh, a whirlpool or something along those lines. Uh, these, these are sort of experiences that um, uh, are form the, the empirical basis for the doctrine, but everything else is kind of... Um, an abstraction from, from these kinds of experiences. And uh, uh, so th there's like um, uh, th this power of thought to um, extrapolate from the, these very limited experiences and, and make them into these uh, sort of universal principles uh, in, in Epicureanism that uh, I think is, is very um, appealing. And then we also see here um, this notion uh or some of the consequences of the idea that uh um all action is action through contact and so this applies to to sensation as well so when we when we see something it's because something from the entity uh you know if you see a tree off in a distance there's some uh some uh flow of particles off of the tree that strikes your your eye and produces um the image of the tree uh, and if you um, if you hear a sound, it's because there's uh, some something that comes off of the the guitar or or harp or whatever, um, and uh, it flows into your ear and uh, you know produces the vibrations in your ear and so on. Um, every every sensation is the product of some kind of um, uh, efflux, some some flow of particles off of the entity that you. Uh, are are sensing uh and and so there's no um there's nothing like a, a kind of mediation required there's no um there's no problem of how we have access to entities uh how we um are connected to entities uh in in sensation uh because sensation is just um the action of an entity on us through this flow of particles and uh and so this also has um, a sort of ethical consequence in in that um, there's a, a kind of um, search for um, for sensation in the in this pure sense. So you you um, 
the one of the sort of principles of, of the stoic ethics or sorry the epicurean ethics is um this uh uh sort of allowing pleasure to govern our lives but not in the sense of um you know seeking out elaborate pleasures and luxuries and so on um but um having a, a kind of simplicity of a contact with uh with entities um so you can uh you know just have your bread and water and um have the the pleasure of just being in contact with that bread and water and being in touch with nature and and aligned with nature through that contact with uh reality um and and this is sort of the uh the ethical consequence of this um physical doctrine of uh the uh action through contact uh, i can read again since you just did a long explanation sure um yeah go ahead uh shit i can't remember where i stopped uh did i stop at the man who seeks yeah i think so uh, uh yeah, that's right the man who seeks ephemeral pleasure turns his back on the object he is isolated from nature and he is deranged like the maniac he does not know how to enjoy how to enjoy further he hurries from the city to his home in the countryside yet having just arrived he sets out again overriding his horses as though his house were on fire the state of ataraxia is precisely what gives legitimacy to veritable sensation, constituting an entire aspect of the sage in the Templa Serena Philosophiae, the serene temples of philosophy. Science is not opposed to sensation. It adds to the sensible by extending it beyond the limits of our senses toward the degrees of invisible smallness. The characteristics of atomic particles could be sensible if our sense organs were of the same size or rather on the same scale. Even in the approximate and conjectural knowledge of physics, realism, which is linked in Epicurean doctrine to the theory of sensation by contact, is perpetually conserved. With a little bit of barley bread and water, the sage can compete with the bliss of Zeus, the same way he can know the reality of things with absolute sensation by contact. The realism of sensation in the state of ataraxia does not require enjoyment to provide happiness, nor does it require mathematical form formalism to yield science. This doctrine thus leads to a research of sensation as contact of the similar with the similar. In the same way, the social relation is an assimilation first and foremost. Epicurean friendship certainly must be in interpreted in this way. It is a homogeneity of lifestyle with tastes, desires, and ways of thinking. It is hardly possible to conceive a search for the other qua other, and this is undoubtedly why sexuality rarely intervenes except as an obstacle, as the danger of alienation, as a loss of ataraxia. It is the source of natural but unnecessary pleasures. Lucretius remains content with acknowledging surgit uh, amari aliquid, something bitter arises, without analyzing more deeply why this undetermined bitterness arises and what it is the sign of. Sexuality does not suffice unto itself, and Lucretius sees in it, above all, a sort of unreasonableness, without seeking to discover the postulation of a relation that would free the individual from himself, and free sensation from the relation of the similar to the similar. Relation, which in the Stoics was invested with the highest power, becomes qua familial or social relation a dangerous thing for the Epicureans. Perhaps this is the serious difficulty of Epicurean thought. It is difficult to consider relation as so inessential to the individual. Lucretius himself acknowledges the importance of civic life in the development of civilization, which protects man from natural dangers like beasts, lightning, and the cold. The method of veritable life, according to wisdom, in fact, resides in the individual's 
uh, knowledge of the limited nature of his life, both in terms of time and in his capacity to feel and enjoy. Man above all is a limited being, and all his unhappiness stems from his incapacity to know his real limits. Man believes to maintain relations with realities that do not exist and will never be in contact with them. Affirming the complete inanity of every relation that is not in actual contact, Epicureanism wants to eradicate false ideas, which overwhelm man by uprooting him from himself, and which follow from a false belief in relations that do not exist. Man lives in fear of the gods. According to Lucretius, Epicurus is the first to have lifted his eyes toward the elevated regions where the gods dwell to understand and make known to men that the gods, if they exist, do not preoccupy themselves with men, since they are all too happy to be in a state of ataraxia themselves. But what uproots the individual being from himself is the fear of death. This fear depends on the myth of an existence after death, a sad and tenebrous existence full of torments, horror, and desolation, a diminished and lamentable life without hope and without light, just like what Homer evokes in the Nekuia, rites by, by which ghosts are summoned to answer questions about the future and of the Odyssey. A celebrated dead warrior says that he would prefer to be a worker for a poor farmer than the prince of the empire of the dead. Uh, Lucretius finds himself facing all these depressing representations of a dark and painful existence where nothing remains of life except misery. Misery and existence after death are inextricable for the ancients. Lucretius claims that men would not seek wealth so much if they weren't afraid of poverty, and that they wouldn't be afraid of poverty if Acris Augustus, severe poverty, were not for them a tangible image of future existence. I don't know why he doesn't just say Achilles here. <laughs> yeah, that was, I, I don't know. That was kind of weird and, and surprising. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Um, yeah, so here, like, yeah, we have a lot of... Um, the, the doctrines of um, Epicureanism sort of evoked in this uh, couple pages. Um, so there's this idea that um, um, this idea of simple pleasures um, as opposed to seeking for um, uh, some sort of infinite pleasure, uh, the, the, our, our, um, our suffering as human beings comes from our um, uh, sort of imagination that we could have an infinite amount of pleasure. Um, so if only you were like a little bit richer, you would have, you know, uh, a better, um, I don't know, set of horses that would give you more pleasure. Or if you had, um, uh, uh, you know, the next level of uh, political office, then you would, you know, have the admiration of your fellow citizens and you would have more pleasure and, and so on. Um, always striving for um, some greater degree of pleasure as opposed to just enjoying the, the whatever you have now. Um, uh, and uh, so this is a, one of the characteristic doctrines of the Epicurean school um, that, uh, you know, the striving after more pleasure or this infinite myth, this mythological depiction or this imaginary depiction of uh, infinite pleasure is what leads to our um, suffering because we feel that we're lacking something as opposed to um, being content with what we have. Um, so this is one of the key doctrines um, of the Epicurean ethics. Um, and then we also have, um, well, we, we just saw the beginning of this section, but this, um, this bit about the fear of death as another source of our um, suffering. Uh, and there's the, the famous argument that, um, that we should not be afraid of death because um, where where death is, I am not, and where I am, death is not. Um, so after death, um, 
you don't survive as a kind of I don't know ghost or spirit or whatever. Um, you there's just nothing. There's there's nothing to be afraid of because there's no you after death to to you know suffer or um, be miserable or anything like that. Um, so death is not something we should be afraid of. It's just the end of our existence. Uh, and um, uh, so the fear of death leads us to, um, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of actions that uh, bring about our suffering. Um, you know, we prepare, uh, we, you know, uh, prepare for warfare um, because we're afraid that someone else is going to kill us. We, um, we have to kill them first. Um, and uh, this leads to all kinds of suffering. And uh, um, uh, so the fear of death and the desire for some sort of infinite pleasure, um, and, and these are related in the sense that we fear death uh, um, because we are sort of uh, in denial about the finitude of our existence. So um, we, we feel like um, death is a kind of... Um, uh, injustice or something that that happens to us uh, against um, our sort of um, desire to live indefinitely uh, or for, to have an infinite life. Um, but if we just sort of accepted our finitude and accepted that we have this finite life with finite pleasures, then we would um, not have this um, striving that causes all this suffering. Uh, and Simondo also here, going going back up a little bit, he. Um, he talks about what he, he describes as being maybe the most serious difficulty for Epicureanism, which has to do with um, sexuality in particular, but relations to others in general. Um, so Epicureanism um, is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it, it uh, treats the individual as uh, the individual human being as um, a sort of isolated individual. Um, and this is the, the sort of um, ideal the sage is someone who is self-sufficient uh, and who doesn't rely on on uh, anything from others to um, to enjoy um, pleasure. Um, but this um, sort of runs into conflict with um, other things that Lucretius recognizes about how um, about how living with others in cities and um, forming uh, a society is beneficial to human beings that we are protected from um, um, you know natural disasters and wild animals and so on um, we uh, uh, we have um, uh, a greater possibility for enjoyment and for pleasure in through uh, association with others than we would if we were just sort of individual uh, individuals left to our own devices uh, and then in sexuality in particular um, um, the Epicureans and, and Lucretius specifically, they, they see this as something da dangerous and um, uh, something that leads you away from the, uh, the life of a sage. Um, uh, and, but it, it's, there's a sort of um, difficulty here because um, they recognize that sexuality is a kind of natural pleasure, um, but at the same time, they see it as something that can sort of distract you from... Uh, uh, the 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 life of the sage um, and and in general they are sort of in denial about any sort of relational aspect of human life or any aspect of human life that involves relation to others and and so this um, this is what Simono sees as one of the biggest weaknesses of the Epicurean school is they they have no account of the um, uh, relational aspect of human life.
the point that he makes about like similarity of taste, desires, and ways of thinking in friendship is the idea there just that similarity is, uh, I guess, friendships in which there is this kind of similarity are more immediate or less mediated. Otherwise, I'm not really sure how that relates to the physics of sensation. Yeah, I think the idea is that um, in the same way, so when we um, when we see something, when we see red, uh, we see I don't know red sunset or whatever. Um, we there's a, a certain um, context between the the uh, the sun uh, with its stream of particles that uh, strikes our eye and, and produces the sensation of red. Uh, there's a, a similarity between the the uh, the entity that produces the the stream of particles and um, the uh, affection uh, or the impact of that stream of particles on uh, our body. Um, there's this uh, relation of similarity that um, that uh, between what is sensed and the sensation. Um, uh, and then likewise, in the case of friendship, um, what the, the the kind of social relation the the only kind of social relation that epicureanism sort of um, allows or or gives any validity to is a social relation of similarity um so you you select um or you associate with other individuals that you um share um you know lifestyle and tastes and so on with as opposed to um in the stoic system there's this um uh, Sort of relation to the uh, universal state, the these various empires of Alexander or or um, of Cyrus or whoever, um, these uh, states that have a, a universal ambition, um, and and this involves a kind of uh, relation to um, the rest of humanity in in this through the mediation of the state or through the mediation of the ruler of the state, um, uh, and and so this is a, a less immediate kind of relation than. Um, this sort of uh, friendship with someone who who shares various um, features with you. Yeah, that makes sense. And in particular, um, we saw um, an earlier mention of, of the way that um, the Epicureans are sort of withdrawn from public life, uh, the life of the city uh, in the ancient world in, in a way that the Stoics are not. Um, the Stoics, uh, like we have Marcus Aurelius, who we'll see later, who was uh, one of the Roman emperors, who was a, a Stoic, um, and there was a, a close association between the Stoics and the rulers of some of the uh, Hellenistic states. Um, whereas the Epicurean, Epicurus himself, was forced to leave Athens for several years, um, and uh, the Epicureans formed these sort of um, uh, not quite outcasts, but um, they were like these sort of uh, private associations that were not part of the public life of the of the cities where they lived, um, and and so the Epicurean friendship is always something. Uh, it's this sort of immediate relation of one individual with another, or with a small group of other individuals, as opposed to um, the Stoic cosmopolitanism, which is a relation to others through this um, vast institution that is the, the empire of uh, Alexander or, or Cyrus. Okay, um, let's go on to the next bit, which I can read. Uh, yeah, here we are. Um, and at any rate, funeral rites indeed show us this alliance of poverty and death. Rags and the ash poured over one's head and clothes, uh, sorry, rags and the ash poured over one's head and clothes express mourning for the ancient. 
this belief which uproots man from his, this manner of consisting in oneself that is provided by the plenitude of the moment lived for itself in the present of sensation is rejected by Lucretius for the idea that death is nothing positive, merely a passage from being to nothingness. There is a logical and psychological illusion in the idea that, that the individual can be dead. After death, there is nothing. The individual has ceased to be. Only the atomic molecules that composed him remain. For a state to be felt, there must be a soul. And this soul, which is made of the lightest atoms, dissipates and loses its unity with the, when this body, bodily vessel loses its airtightness at the moment of death. One can but die, one cannot be dead, for the dead being is no longer an individual. He no longer has a soul or unity. The nothingness after life is symmetrical with the nothingness before it. The idea of an afterlife is the result of an illusion. Through a sort of splitting, the individual being imagines standing beside his own corpse, weeping, uh, weeping for himself. But this splitting never happens. This being will dissipate but will not split. He will be annihilated and not diminished. Thus the individual lives in conformity with the law of all or nothing thereby leaving no place for influences for obscure and hidden relations. Everything that exists exists actually in the instantaneous present, and events are merely the results of a particular molecular of particular molecular action. Furthermore, unlike with Stoicism, there is no valorization of the fact with the Epicureans. Fact is pure result. Science seeks to know the causes of things, not their end. This doctrine is neither anthropocentric nor theo theocentric. Stoicism is a mystical rationalism wherein reason becomes that which makes, makes it possible to know the ends of things. The Epicureans' realist intellectualism is opposed to this rationalism. According to this mode of knowledge, which also supposes a certain conception of being, there is no circular process of reality in the simple or composite being. In this case, sensation, contact without recurrence, and action by immediate contact, exchange of one being with another, are supposed to constitute the whole order of the real. Conversely, in finalist rationalism, Every being tries to rediscover its own cause within itself and attempts without modification to transform, albeit only through the conversion of the state of fact into right, its situation into an aspect of the finality of the cosmos. The justification and rationalization of the world ultimately amounts to a self-justification and a discovery of the individual's validity. The opposition between Stoicism and Epicureanism is that of a philosophy which defines the individual as what acts upon itself to a philosophy which defines the individual by its limits which are known based on their genesis. These two doctrines attempt to know what the order of succession is in the individual being, but they become separate after this shared intention. In short, Epicureanism finds in the independence and perfection of the instant, as well as in the independence of this succession of instants, that is life relative to the part as a whole and the future as a whole, the method for grasping the individual in its highest reality. Conversely, Stoicism seeks in the, the link of each instant to the whole of life and in the link of the whole of life to the world's movement the condition for the conversion of the individual being, which is integrated into the totality. Epicureanism seeks the causes where Stoicism seeks the ends. The knowledge of ends joins together many successive converging instants. The knowledge of causes isolates each instant as a final product of everything that has engendered it. In the instant, the knowledge of causes attaches to contemporary beings. The knowledge of ends straddles the present and unifies duration by leading the being to react upon itself, to will itself, to cause itself. Consequently, the unity of the temporal series can only be gained at the price of an integration into the necessary order of the universe, according to a rationalist finalism. Conversely, the unity of the self-consistent instant can only be obtained at the price of a discontinuity introduced into the succession of the individual states by privileging causality and leaving out any relation of finality, which makes each, each instant overflow itself. Relation sacrifices the independence of the individual in the instant, and its independence sacrifices continuity, the unity of the series. The same back and forth swaying as the one that opposed the system of relation in accordance with simultaneity to the doctrine of the fulfillment of the being in itself appears here. 
Each presupposition concerning individuality leads to its contrary. So we have more here on this um, account of uh, death and the fear of death in Epicureanism. Um, so there's a, a sort of illusion in the idea of, of being dead. Um, you sort of imagine yourself next to your corpse and um, mourning yourself. Uh, this is an, an image that Lucretius uses. Um, um, you, uh, you picture yourself as dead, but also as like observing yourself being dead. Um, whereas in reality, being, there is no such thing as being dead. You're, you die, there's an event of, of dying. Uh, and after that, there's nothing. Um, there's no you to to be dead or to um, experience death. Uh, and so, because of this, we we shouldn't fear death as a, a state that we will sort of be in. Um, we we should see death just as a kind of uh, um, happening or or the end of our lifespan, um, and and not as a as a state that will um, that will be in. Um, and so. Um, there's no more, there's nothing more to fear about um, the state of nothingness after death than there was to fear about the state of nothingness before we were born. Uh, and, and so they're equally just states of nothingness. Uh, and then Simon Don draws some, some consequences of this account of death um, uh, in contrast with the Stoic um, philosophy um, of the individual. So for the Epicureans, uh, it's only what what exists now that that truly exists. There's a sort of uh, instantaneous nature of existence, um, and then um, the the future is something that doesn't um, have a, a true existence or um, is something that uh, does it doesn't have reality. Um, whereas in Stoicism, there's this um, finality to the universe, and so uh, in a sense, it's the the goal of the universe, the the end that the universe is oriented towards, that is ultimately real, uh, and everything is just sort of pointing towards that end. Um, and so Simon Don argues here that um, we have a, a similar kind of opposition as the one that we saw earlier between uh, Plato and Aristotle, between the um, order uh, uh, of simultaneity and the order of succession, um, where um, um, here we have uh, an opposition where the Stoics are capable of uh, grasping this uh, finality and uh, orientation toward the future, but they, they can only do so by um, incorporating the individual into this greater cosmic order and, and kind of dissolving the individual in, in this cosmic order, whereas the Epicureans um, grasp the individual as a, a, a separate being um, but they do so at the cost of um, kind of losing this uh, orientation toward the future. Uh, and so each side of this opposition sort of grasps one side of what it is to be a human individual, uh, but they lose the other side and have to deny the validity of the other side. Uh, and so what Simon Don is going to want to do is to be able to grasp both of these sides at the same time. So... Um, to, to have a, an account of the human individual that um, uh, accounts both for the, the separateness of the individual and also for the um, sort of pointing towards the future and the incorporation of the individual uh, into greater uh, collectives than um, uh, collectives of, of greater size than the individual. Okay, um, I'm gonna suggest that we 
um, stop here unless there are any other uh, questions or comments um, before we end. Um, and then we can pick up from, well, there's this little summary and then we'll pick up from the, uh, what's the next one? Actually, the summary is a bit longer than I thought. Anyway, um, we have uh, the cynics and Pyrrho and um, some of the other uh, philosophers after that. Why do you think he stops with, uh, I mean, Lucretius was a Roman poet or a Roman philosopher, right? Uh, yeah. Just because he's, he, he's, I guess, as you said earlier, he's the source of like our knowledge of Epicureanism. So the division ends with the Greeks here, but includes Lucretius. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there is a certain overlap um, between like Greek philosophy and Roman philosophy. Of course, you have Greek philosophers who are writing in the Roman era. So when uh, uh, we'll see later, um, Plotinus, for example, was uh, uh, from uh, Egypt, um, uh, which was a Greek uh, or from the Greek colony in, in Egypt at, at the time. Um, uh, but it was part of the Roman Empire. Um, uh, so there's are there are Greek philosophers writing in the, the Roman era that we'll see um, in the next few bit um, readings that we get through. Hmm, okay, that makes sense. Uh, and then at the uh, bottom of page 502 for me, when he's talking about, uh, when he says in Epicurean, the Epicurean realist intellectualism, there's no circular process of reality in the simple or composite being. Uh, the circular process of reality is that does that have to do with the incorporation of the individual into the cosmos and stoic thought um i'm not sure what that reference to circularity is yeah i think it has to do with the finalism of um the stoic physics um okay so um he uh he's i think appealing here or sort of alluding here to some of the cybernetic uh principles about uh, or the cybernetic um understanding of finality in terms of uh feedback mechanisms and, and circular causality um okay so, so like in some of the uh um cyber early cybernetic um devices that um like the homeostat, homeostat that, right yeah so it, it has this circular causality because it it um its own current state feeds back into the um uh it so the device measures its current state and then um measures the difference between that, that current state and the goal state. Uh, and then it, it acts in such a way to reduce that difference. Uh, and then it measures again and, uh, and so on. So it, it will constantly reduce that difference and try to preserve a certain goal state. Um, and, uh, and so this picture of, um, this is sort of the picture that Simon Dow is using for um, how an entity can have a, a sort of finalism to it. Uh, it it has this circular causality where it uh, it acts on itself. It uh, it measures itself or observes itself or or um, uh, measures whatever state it happens to be in, and then it um, it acts on its own state and then brings about a new state which is closer to whatever the goal state is. So is he saying that Stoics are like homeostasis? Um, in a sense, yes. Yeah. So he's <laughs> he's sort of. Um, so the Stoic sage is a kind of homeostat that um, um, seeks, you know, to to maintain uh, this um, uh, resonance with the universe. Um, so this is the, the sort of goal state. So every every entity in the universe has its own sort of um, particular frequency of resonance with the universe, and uh, 
finding that state and and maintaining it is is what the 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 goal of the sage is that's a pretty funny image the state is sort of regulating its own temperature <laughs> yeah and and you can see why um why you might think that this is maybe a, a kind of limited um, conception of uh, um, human individuality that um, that you know if, right. if you conceive of you know human action as just being oriented towards preserving a, a kind of goal state um, uh, and uh, resonating with the universe and so on, um, it uh, it kind of leaves out the um, independence of the individual, which is what the Epicureans are emphasizing. Um, and, and so Simondon wants to um, have an account of human individuality that that is uh, capable of doing justice to both aspects at the same time and not just uh, sort of selecting one and denying the other. Right. That makes sense. This is, so this is related to his distinction between consciousness and conscience earlier, where he says that, you know, the... the uh, I think he says, you know, the slave is never just a speaking tool because there's always the possibility of like a reorientation or revaluation. Yeah. So that would be, um, so that like if the slave were just a speaking tool, um, just a sort of device that, uh, that, uh, is oriented towards some end that you select for it. Um, then, um, then the slave would be a kind of homeostat that just, um, uh, resonates with the frequency of whatever the master selects as the the goal state um, right but because the slave always has this capacity to reject those goals or to um, institute new goals or or um, restructure its set of goal states um, that that means that the slave is never purely a speaking tool or, or purely a homeostat unlike the stoic sage apparently <laughs> yeah and and so this and this is also related to, I mean, this was like a, a sort of saying of the Stoics that you can be a sage, whether you're the emperor or a slave, you, you, mm. you still have the same freedom. Um, and uh, um, we can see that this is a, a pretty limited conception of right. freedom because, uh, you know, if, if you're free as a slave or if, if your freedom is still is the same thing, whether you're a slave or an emperor, it's a, a pretty, um, uh, yeah, it's just a, a thin notion of freedom. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I agree with that. Right. Uh, so any other uh, questions or comments before we uh, end for today? Um, none from me. Cool. Okay. So let's um, end here and um, we'll pick up. Let me make sure I write this down this time. Pick up from page 501. Okay. Um, so thanks for coming out and uh, hopefully we'll see you next week.